these cannabis companies were going to have to pay their tax bills. They did not accept cash for tax bills at IRS offices prior to two years ago when they hired a consulting firm to teach them how to accept cash and put in proper processes and controls and You're systems kidding. to take the amount of cash they were getting for tax bills. Other Before that, there was no way for people to actually pay their tax bills in cash. Now, here's interesting. Historically, we're talking go back two, 300 years during the colonial period, when hemp was being grown, you could pay your taxes with hemp. No joke. You could <laughs> That's fantastic bring, irony. You could bring bales of hemp and pay your tax with weed. Uh, boy, how we... We should go back to that system. We, we might. We, well, listen, if it all goes to hell in a rocket, we're going to be back in a barter system anyway. I mean, we're close to that. We're like Unless a we world turn over right to yeah. cryptocurrency. So what a great segue. So that is uh, <laughs> digital currency has been nibbling at the edges of cannabis for the last five years. And why is that? Because if you can figure out a way to use a non-US based currency, and Liz is the expert on this more so than I am, um, it solves all your problems with a secured access to you know, transactional amounts. Liz, you want to jump in? Yeah, so the idea of cryptocurrency is very interesting. So if you take it and you break it down, cryptocurrency is based on the technology of blockchain. And blockchain, at a very fundamental level, takes data points from various different places and uses an algorithm to pull them all together to prove the owner of different pieces of information. And so you can mine for these blockchain pieces based on the algorithms that are at work here. So in, a, in an oversimplified manner to explain how cryptocurrency works is I have a key, the algorithm has a key, and then there's a third-party key elsewhere, generally speaking. And then you pull them all together, and through this, this system that reads it, they can say, yep, that's her money. She owns that particular um, piece of cryptocurrency. So coin, we'll call it, right? Even though it's a digital coin, and there's never any physical coins, and that confuses people. But it is technically a currency. It's a fiat currency, a currency based on nothing. Your belief that it has that's value. A, that's American currency, right? It now. is absolutely. Right. I agree with you. It was, um, it was Nixon who pulled this off the gold standard, wasn't it? 
Right. Yes. So for right. the last fifty years, we've been on a fiat currency well, in the US anyway. But it's our fiat that we were currency. Off of at that point. But yes. yes, but yeah. also the fiat currency in the United States is backed by the assets of the US, which right now we're in a giant deficit. So it is clearly just a belief in the system. Um, but traditionally, it has been backed by the fact that the, the U.S. government does have some kind of asset. The companies that are producing cryptocurrency, there is no asset backing it. The asset is just the technology that exists, and the value of that is very small. And so it requires everybody to put in their faith into the cryptocurrency that it's going to hold. And there have been many cryptocurrencies that have failed. And I'm sure if you watch the Bitcoin markets, they go down and up and down and up. And it's all dependent on people's emotions on that day. And if you believe in like true market hypotheses, right, you're looking at all the information from everywhere in the world coming into this currency that's worldwide because it has no origin country base. So it has no economic tie to a specific place or a specific time. So anyways, sidetracked slightly, getting back to the fundamentals of what a cryptocurrency is, you hold these secret keys. These keys are not identified to you in any way, shape, or form. I can hand off the technology to Andy, and he now owns those coins. Nobody knows who's behind that ownership. You can't track it. The only way to track it is if you're utilizing an app to trade the cryptocurrency that's not super secure, which is a failure on many people's part. They're also super hackable. I could hack them. I can steal all the cryptocurrency in many of those off of somebody's phone that's just sitting out if it's connected to public Wi-Fi. So Would the you next give thing her though, your phone? I want to see this. Pardon me? Give her your phone. <laughs> I want to see this. So the, the next thing I want to bring up, though, is... Do you see, have any Bitcoin? I'd like to see her take them from you. I did. I don't anymore. I would never she steal them She apparently took them from you. She probably did. The... the trick here though is so this is all wonderful it's theoretical it's great you have this this series of alphanumeric code whatever to recognize the amount of the digital currency you have at some point you have to convert that into a tangible currency so yes. you can use it in normal life or whatever or unless you or, buy or, everything or, on the dark web i was gonna right. say or or do you um it's hard isn't the world increasingly becoming more uh open to this digital they Option. are. In fact, Ethereum is growing so quickly, they're coming out with Ethereum 2.0. And Ethereum 2.0 will actually pay you interest on your holdings inside of their currency, which is the first cryptocurrency in the world to do this. It's an actual checking account. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Uh, yep. But for, for most of us, that's still not available. And many people want to be able to convert to renminbi or us dollars or of course uh, i mean the, the currency of the world is not cryptocurrency at right. this moment but we're heading that direction and so those that do the conversion frankly are almost invariably outside the united states the conversion the, yeah well if you're looking at like the server logs of where it's converted or how that's happening on the technology Fair. side absolutely yes and there are a lot of people in the U.S. utilizing apps to do the conversion from their coin. So effectively what happens there is there's two trades that occur. They give out their secret key for the coin. Simultaneously, they receive U.S. dollars in a Venmo-like transa mm -hmm. transaction for ease of explanation. It's two completely separate transactions occurring from but the technological side. what's the originating side. bank? Where's the originating bank? It's not in the U.S. No, absolutely not. It's in Montenegro, somewhere else, which causes an issue for cannabis because you're converting internationally and you can't leave a state technically yep uh, the federal government will acknowledge cannabis enterprises so long as they're bordered around a state that's enabled sure. cannabis enterprises and you can't have a cryptocurrency based in the u.s because it's completely federally illegal because right. the united states only allows one currency right 
and, has and that's a big the U.S. dollar. In, and has a big interest in Absolutely. keeping U.S. Absolutely. currency as the hegemonic currency Well, if you start world. thinking about what could happen, if you if if the population stops believing that the U.S. dollar holds value and starts believing that these cryptocurrencies hold more value, you're devaluing the U.S. dollar implicitly. And that's a really scary economic thought. Mm-hmm. Has global imbalance issues. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, the United States dollar is for all intents and purposes, the world's primary currency that's traded, is it not? It's a big deal for us, too. Yeah. yeah. And I know, like, even when I've traveled internationally, it almost did not matter what country I went to, people would take U.S. dollars from me. Frequently, yeah. although that's changing quite a bit. Yes. And there are many countries that used to peg their dollars to the U.S. dollar from an economic standpoint that no longer do, and for good reason. Okay, so where in the current cannabis industry is cryptocurrency most being utilized? Is it, for example, B2B, or is it customer to dispensary, or is it both, or neither? Are we talking legal cannabis industry or illegal cannabis fair, industry? Fair, fair, fair. And, and I appreciate that there is a wildly divergent answer to that, <laughs> so thanks for making the distinction. Um, let's start with the legal uh, <laughs> state approved industry first, and then we'll talk about the complete dark underbelly. A number of enterprises have tried to thread this needle legally and above board, Potcoin, Alt36, and and others. Mm -hmm. To my knowledge, nobody yet has been able to get regulatory approval at a state level to be the default digital currency for cannabis businesses in in any state. Hmm. I may be wrong. I haven't seen one. It's a really interesting idea. I've seen a happen. few people tell me that they have, but when I look at it further, there's it has not gotten actual approval. Right. Um, that they're just using it effectively in peer-to-peer transactions. Right. Okay. So realistically, at least at this moment in time, you would assess then that while things are moving towards digital currency in the world of licit cannabis, it's really barely gotten underway. I, I don't know if the world's moving towards that i think the world is more likely moving towards a federal legalization event allowing for traditional banking the digital currency folks are trying to crack in but i think there's too much at stake from a u.s banking perspective well it's two separate legal issues you're dealing with right right? because you're dealing with the legality of the money that's being traded due to actually touching a, a you know schedule one drug and then you're also dealing with the having of cryptocurrency, which is technically illegal to do business in the United States with, right? Because it is not the U.S. dollar, which is our currency. And so, you know, right now, cryptocurrency is, for all intents and purposes, from the IRS perspective, are dealt with as foreign currency. So if you hold cryptocurrency worth over $10,000 in any account, anywhere, even if you live in the U.S. and you've only accessed it from the U.S., that is considered a foreign bank account and you have to report it. Do most people report it? Absolutely not. Didn't think so. Nope. They're cracking down on it, supposedly. They've they? put together a task force mm-hmm. to crack down on what they call the F-bar issues. Um, but, I'm sorry, uh, is that the F-bomb issues? F-bar issues. Oh. That's what the IRS calls it. I but know. if you're on the receiving end of it, it's the F-bomb issue. Pretty much. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's very it's a very difficult thing to crack down on and effectively requires invasion of personal rights because the only way they can find out if you have this account is if they have access to either your Wi-Fi records. They're looking at you, you know, what you're accessing on the internet. Other than that, this is a completely anonymous currency. 
And that data is incredibly easy to get, though. Absolutely. I mean, like I said, I could hack into anybody's public or their Wi-Fi. Even if it's encrypted, it takes me maybe 15 minutes to hack Not it. Not that you would do that. It's all theoretical, what you're talking about. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I'm, But I can. And so the point, if, if I can, to. as a CPA, yeah. like a financial nerd that has nothing to do with like technology, cybercrime, I'm not a hacker. I have nothing in that space. And if I can do That's it. That's what he said. Oh, yeah. Well, that means it's really easy. And quite frankly, a lot of the laws that have come through, um, you know, in the last 20 years have made it so the government can grab that information legally without your knowledge. So so what Liz is really saying is deleting your browsing history alone is not enough. Absolutely not. Yeah, it actually, I hadn't thought about that. It's kind of a Patriot Act issue, is. theoretically, yep. when you're screwing with the full faith and credit of the U.S. dollar. Yeah. Yeah. It is. They can in invoke it to do this, and they've uh -huh. done it before. All right. That. And that provides the perfect segue now to talk about the non-licit market where most of this activity is going on. And I guess we can use that really to lever uh, the conversation as applied to psychedelics. So yeah, absolutely. tell me. Uh, that's where <laughs> the psychedelic trade is right now. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. And uh, I don't know if you all do much social media in, in the psychedelics world, but um, I have joined on Facebook and on Reddit and a few other social media sites, you know, the different subgroups that have psychedelics as their focus. And I, I read the chatter and I see what people are talking about and try to, to glean what the temperature of the room is, so to speak. And it seems pretty clear to me that although transactions are absolutely forbidden on these social media sites and, and the hosts and moderators in those rooms are really very good about jumping in and stopping that when it starts to bubble up, you can still see it happen. And, and it's pretty clear that digital currency is the currency of the black market these days. Um, occasionally, you'll see somebody griping that they mailed somebody a money order and nothing got mailed back to them, <laughs> um, which is not surprising at all. grandma? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and I'll tell you, you see that particular story at least once a week in one forum or another. Um, but to me, it seems like most of it is, in fact, digital currency or, or Bitcoin or that sort of thing that's the currency of those uh, dark web transactions. So are you also seeing that as well? I mean, I try not to venture into the dark web beyond just understanding what's happening from an enforcement perspective. Um, but you've seen in the last, I mean, since 2013, when they shut down Silk Road, you've seen hundreds of different sites pop up for those types of transactions and every single one of them it's it's a cryptocurrency that they're using to actually make the transactions with hundreds of thousands of drug dealers on there selling whatever substance they want for whatever dollar value they want with no regulation yeah so i i agree with liz my my whole emphasis in my practice and my work is to try to promote the legal cannabis industry and and hopefully the legalized psilocybin industry as it comes and so i'm, I'm i can't really comment <laughs> <laughs> can't or won't <laughs> what it's your opinion of what the dark web yeah. the dark web i don't hang out on the dark web i i visit places because in my job it's important for me to know what's going on but uh i have not transacted business there I uh, try not to. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm in a heavily regulated industry. I've got a law license. Actually, I've got 
I have law licenses to worry about. So, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, exactly. We're all licensed professionals. It's difficult to stay on top of what's happening and, in those areas. And our clients are trying to operate above board and legally and and. All of my clients do operate legally. Not sure who you're working with. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to. Let's use more definitive language, Andy. That's a fair point, too, because both you and I, Andy, we we do civil law practice. We don't do criminal law practice. So if this is going on and people are getting nailed for it or charged for it, I never know about it because I just don't deal with that sort of clientele. Yeah. My my clientele tend to be existing cannabis businesses or or the investors in those businesses yep. and uh, even then it's usually folks who are uh, having fights over some contractual disagreement. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, an investment that went a uh, different direction or unfulfilled terms or a basic misunderstanding on what somebody was or wasn't supposed to be getting. So that's, that's a lot of what I deal with. Well, and, and the legalized cannabis market only touches maybe, in certain states, half the actual cannabis transactions in a state, maybe maybe less. And so I'm, I'm not naive. I know that there's a vast ocean of illegal cannabis transactions happening. And it's not just, you know, the illegal growers. There are some legal licensed cannabis companies selling out their back doors because they get a better profit margin. And don't have to report it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. They don't have to pay taxes on that. Yeah, I, I have come across that in my practice as well. And I think part of it is the easy ability to defeat the mandatory inventory controls that are imposed on these businesses mm-hmm. through state regulation. Mm-hmm. Um, for those of you who, who may not live in a state that has some form of licit cannabis, which increasingly is rare. I, I think we're down to like fewer than 10 states that are holdouts. Um, most, if not all states, I, I, in fact, I haven't read every state statutes, but I'm willing to go on a limb here and say every one of these states has an inventory control mandate baked into either their statutes, their regulations, or both. And often on a real-time basis. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, Here in Arizona, that is certainly true. And we have to track things here from seed to sale and every step in between. Yes. And well. And a lot of the systems that say they do that don't. So it's quite fun from the the actual inventory tracking (laughs) side to make sure it's right. Um, And to take into consideration processing and manufacturing and Mm -hmm. The drying process in general. I mean, if you're mm. counting weight, it's going to get lighter. Right, because water loss. Yep. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, another phenomenon here in Arizona that probably exists in other states as well is that we have caregivers. And caregivers are specialty licensed individuals who can have cultivation rights on behalf of patients. So a lot of these caregivers will cluster scads of patients so that they can have singular, really large grows. The way Arizona's statutes work is that each patient, if they live in a certain distance outside of an envelope of an open dispensary, they can have cultivation rights and they can have at any given moment up to 12 plants growing. And if they have a caregiver, they can transfer those cultivation rights to their caregiver who now serves as their legal proxy. And that caregiver can themselves be a patient and under our laws, they can have a maximum of five patients beneath them, plus themselves be a patient. So an individual caregiver can be growing at any moment up to 72 plants, I believe. By the way, never ask a lawyer to do math. I could be wrong on that. Um, 
Siri, we have an accountant here, so. <laughs> I'm not good at arithmetic. Well, she uses spreadsheets. In any event, an individual. <laughs> I can do calculus in my head. Ooh, that's about it. That's handy. Um, I avoided calculus. <laughs> that was my favorite subject. What's the volume of my abstract shape? Who cares? Anyway. Um, <laughs> that's my answer I'm not going to gonna that. answer that question. It's a lot of volume. I, I, I was a literature major. I, I don't know anything about calculus. Um, in any event, there is opportunity for these uh, caregivers to aggregate a lot of plants, and nobody necessarily tracks this. Nope. These caregivers are not subject to even remotely the regulations that the dispensaries are, are subject to. So there's a lot of opportunity for mischief. And then stop and think about it. An individual patient having a right to 12 plants, even if you're like the worst cultivator in the world, you're still going to get about a pound out of a plant, even if you're a crappy cultivator. So that's a lot of product. Mm -hmm. And if you're a good cultivator, you can get up to five pounds out of a plant, possibly more. I need to start cultivating. Not yet. <laughs> not, not legal in Arizona. But we do uh, have an initiative. No, it's legal. Well, so long provided as you're 25 miles away. Yeah. So for for the kids at home, Arizona's rule says you have to live outside of the 25 mile envelope of an open dispensary. If you live outside of that envelope, you can apply for and receive cultivation rights. Pretty uh, sure Andy just texted his mortgage broker. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like fun. Well, li living in a desert state that that really only had its population uh, installed in the last 50 years. It's a pretty tight, concentrated population, so it's very hard for people in Arizona to claim cultivation status. Mm -hmm. You really have to be in one of the far-flung counties to, to have that opportunity. And, and I'm, I'm sympathetic to those people, too, because there Absolutely. really aren't yeah. dispensaries open in those communities because it just doesn't sustain. Right. People need access to their medicine, shouldn't have to drive two hours. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So although we joke a little bit, understand that all three of us take this deadly serious, yeah. and we do all three honestly believe cannabis is medicine and that there are real patients with real maladies and that this medicine does really help them. For sure. Absolutely. And, and hopefully continues to do so. And beyond. So, and on, so on that point, this also now expands into our broader topic of psychedelics because okay. now we're on the illicit market. So do you all currently see any sort of financial activity or, or the like involving things other than cannabis? So I don't because I don't cryptocurrency is based on the technology.